This is a CNIB Foundation podcast. Because Braille. Hi, I'm Rhonda Underhill Gray, and today in the studio, we're talking about Braille, and I have Robert just with me, who is a longtime Braille user. Welcome to the studio, Robert. Thanks for having me, Rhonda. It's a pleasure I've been really looking forward to. Well, I was very excited to have you come in and talk to us about Braille because I got to share a little bit with the with our audience about my personal experience with Braille. Um, when I was quite young, I would take my school yearbooks home and, and read them from cover to cover. And I'm reading this uh, yearbook one day and I decide to read the actual cover cover of it. And I read that the book had been transcribed by Robert Just and Sandra Weir. And all of a sudden, I went, Robert Just, I know that name, because obviously we had grown up in the same community. Robert was a few years ahead of me, uh, but I knew the name, and all of a sudden, there was a connection to how Braille was made. And Robert, you were a big part of that for me, so thank you so much. So having you here in the studio today is a very personal experience for me. So thank you for coming in and and sharing your stories with us. Just goes to show you how small our world is. It it is a very small world. And us Maritimers, we always find each other somehow. We could probably be in anywhere in the world, and Maritimers tend to connect somehow. That's right. Yes. Uh, So let's start out by telling us a little bit about you. How, you know, did you grow up with sight loss? Yes, I did. Okay, so let's start from there. Yeah, okay. When I was born, my optic nerve was atrophied, and uh, that that resulted in my uh, blindness. Now, in my early years, when I was just a little uh, toddler, about six years older thereabouts, I could only see just a little hint out of my left eye, and uh, my right eye was totally in the fog, and I was going around cracking my shin bones on this, that, and the other thing. But as the years progressed, I think the ocular muscle on the right side did increase in strength so that now I can see lights and shadows equally in both eyes. Like I, I can see that light up there now and I, I know when the light's on. Okay. And so did you go away to school at a very young age? Yes, I did. Uh, I started at the old Halifax School for the Blind in 1951. And at the time we were living in New Brunswick and that meant uh, a fair bit of uh, traveling. And the school, as you know, served the four Atlantic provinces, and you had uh, students there from all four of the provinces, and some of the kids were not able to get home, say, for Christmas or Easter because their parents were not what you call in a real high income bracket, and particularly the ones from Newfoundland, uh, you know, before they could fly home, you know, they had to go on the, the ferries and uh, one thing and another like that. But I know I'm getting off topic here. <laughs> That's okay. So do you remember the first time that you actually encountered Braille? Yes. Uh, it, it would have been in uh, 1951. Uh, and uh, our teacher then was Miss Georgina Bradshaw. And uh, some of the folks might uh, possibly remember her. Very gracious lady she was. And she would uh, sort of press my fingers on a a letter, and she'd ask me what it was. And as a matter of fact, the first time she did that, you know, she said, what's that letter? And I said, it's A. And I was just guessing. It was just a hunch. And she said, good for you. And I remember particularly 
one of the expressions that she used to use, for instance, the letter O, she called it the surprise letter. Why did you call it the surprise letter? Well, you know, when you're surprised, you say, oh. Oh, of course. <laughs> that makes such sense. <laughs> I asked other guests uh, what if they have a favorite Braille contraction or a favorite letter or a uh, combination of letters. Do you have one? Well, no. Uh, Braille is Braille. But I'll, I'll tell you one thing that I do take very strong exception to is this UEB code. You know, I, I have no use for that whatsoever. I have a Braille note taker at home, and I also have a good old-fashioned Perkins, which I like very much to use. And I stick to good old grade two Braille with the basic contractions and so forth. I don't care which way the uh, the world is spinning as far as UB, UEB is concerned. I do not like it, and I make no bones about it. Do you find it confusing or not? does it not make sense? What's the... The, the, the way they've done it. They've they've really uh, messed it up because a lot of the conventional contractions that we grew up with are no longer in existence in UEB. Okay. So it's the learning curve that's... Yes. And for those who are not uh, instructed, UEB stands for Unified English Braille. Okay. Do you read a lot of Braille books or literature? Yes, I do. Uh, I enjoy it very much, but uh, in recent years, I've gotten into the talking books uh, a lot more, but I still like to keep my Braille skills up. I have the whole Bible in Braille. I have the Old Testament in the King James Version, and then the New Testament in what they call the Good News Translation. So would you say that the Bible is probably the longest book you've ever read in Braille? I would think so, but here's where I get back into my memory bank here. And I'd like to tell you a little story about reading to a chap who had just been newly blinded through a, a disease. And as a matter of fact, so serious was the disease that he was unconscious for about two and a half months in the hospital. And when he came to, he was totally blind. And when he started at the school in 1959, I was in grade seven. And I used to borrow books from the school library and I used to sit on his bed in the evening before lights out time, and I'd read several chapters of the book that I borrowed from the library. And I think that's, that helped me brush up my skills, my, my reading speed and expression and one thing and another. And each evening after I finished my homework, I would go up and I would sit on his bed and I would say to him, well, where did we, where did we stop reading last night? Well, of course, I always had a ribbon bookmark there, so I knew, but I just wanted to see how well he was following what I was reading. And he told me exactly where we left off, and then we'd continue on from there. And it gave me a great deal of pleasure. And then another night, uh, when we were supposed to be asleep, I, had, <laughs> I was reading the Braille uh, version of Robinson Crusoe. And before we all dropped off, I read a total of 15 chapters to the boys in the dorm that night, encompassing about 45 pages. I really got into it. Were you, were you in, uh, I guess if you said you were in grade 7, so you'd be in the senior dorms then? That's right. Yeah. And they didn't really, as long as everybody was quiet, nobody came in to, to chastise you for reading. Well, uh, the night watchman would come by and, and he'd shine his flashlight in there, you know. As a matter of fact, I remember one night... Uh, 
it was well into the wee small hours of the next morning, and I was uh, lying on, or sitting on my bed reading to myself. And the night watchman shone his light into the dorm, and he said, are you sick? And I said, no, Joe, I'm not sick. And he said, oh, I see you're reading. Uh, are you enjoying your story? And I said, yes, very much so. And he said, okay, I won't bother you anymore. <laughs> Some advantages to, to being a Braille reader, would you say? Oh, by all means, because you don't need a reading light or anything like that. Let's talk about the people who taught you Braille. I recall that you were on a CBC radio show a few years back. Yeah, and... weekend mornings out of Halifax. Yeah, tell us about that. Okay. Uh, when I got into about grade three and four and through to grade six, uh, Miss Pearl Campbell, who later became Pearl Stewart, was our uh, Braille reading and writing teacher. And she was a real stickler for perfection. Now, I'm talking now about the old cumbersome Braille slates with the boards underneath them, and uh, you had to punch one dot at a time. And what you did is you put the paper in, and uh, you did the brailing, and then when you took the paper out of the slate, you had to turn it the other way. So as you, you, you're writing from right to left and reading from left to right. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> The, the old-fashioned Braille slates. And, you know, you'd be uh, st uh, with, with your stylus, tick, 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 tick. And somebody would probably say you sound like a woodpecker. But uh... <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I know the story that you're uh, touching on here, and I'm glad to relate it for you. It was in grade four, and uh, Miss Campbell made us a promise that if everybody turned in an absolutely perfect, flawless page of Braille writing on, a, on the same day, she would take us on a picnic. So everybody really buckled down and tried to do their best. And all it would take was just one dot out of place or something like that by one person, and that would have upset the apple cart. So this one particular day, she checked all the papers, and they were all letter-perfect. And then she said, I guess we go on our picnic. Well, she uh, asked a sighted uh, teacher to come along to help chaperone the kids there at the, at the park. We're, we're at the Dingle there in Halifax, you know, Fleming Park. Mm -hmm. And it was a Saturday afternoon. And we played all sorts of games, and they uh, prepared us a lovely picnic uh, meal. And then, to add to the fun, a reporter from the Halifax Chronicle Herald, a photographer and reporter, showed up at the park, and he took a picture of the group, and he got all the names of the people who went to the picnic. And in a couple of days, it was published in the paper with all the, all the names and where they were from. Oh. You know, so it, it was one of those rewarding experiences that will never leave my mind. I actually heard about this story from um, Pearl Stewart. Yes. She had heard it and was very flattered that it was something that had been remembered. She's now uh, passed on. Yes. But she was very um, flattered. Yes. She, was... she thought she might have been a bit of a tyrant, but she, <laughs> no, she had well, a good laugh about it. Yeah, and well, as a she... matter of fact, I, I talked to her on the phone about it. Yes. And she, uh, she I had talked with her. Uh, I guess shortly after that, and that's how I heard about the the whole story. 
Who would you say the most interesting person or the person that's had the biggest impact on your Braille experience has been? Okay, the, there were several teachers who were more or less of the old school as far as Braille was concerned, like uh, when you use certain contractions and when you didn't use them and all this sort of thing. And there was another Miss Campbell there too, Miss Prudence Campbell, and she was also a perfectionist when it came to Braille writing, and she wanted you to read accurately and so on. And she could be rather cantankerous at times, but then after a while, when she was nearing retirement, she mellowed out. That happens sometimes with us, I think. It does. <laughs> and then uh, for a few years, we had a teacher who actually transferred from the music department. Ariel Watson was her name. Uh, does that name ring a bell with it you? It does, yes. Okay. Well, when I was in grade seven and eight, she was our Braille reading and writing coach. And she kind of got tired of uh, the lack of interest in music. So she decided to transfer to the literary side of things. And, uh, of course, uh, there, there would be prizes given out. Now, getting back to Pearl Campbell, I remember one particular year, I had won a prize for proficiency in Braille reading and writing. Now, the thing about Pearl was that she wouldn't give a monetary gift. She would go out and buy a gift, and a very practical one at that. As a matter of fact, that time when I won that prize, I think it was in about grade three, you know what she gave me? A beautiful necktie and a nice matching set of cufflinks. Okay, for grade, in grade three. Yes. I wonder what a grade three student would do with that these days. Oh, heaven knows. <laughs> yes, and, she was very practical. Lady. Yes, and another thing, uh, when I was there, toward the end of the school year, we would have a Braille reading contest. And the judges of the Braille reading contest, well, Pearl was one of the judges for a while, and then the Braille librarian was the other judge, uh, Miss uh, Charlotte Armsworthy, Lottie, she was known as. And now, she could be very, very strict, and she could uh, blow her cool every now and then. As teachers sometimes did back then. That's right. <laughs> I must tell you a little story about her. Now, this is really, really nice. One evening, she invited us to the library for an open house. And, well, she, she had a room right there at the school. You know, she stayed in there all the time. Okay. And... Several of us went to the library, and she let us browse at random at the, the various books. They're all arranged in alphabetical order. And to show her appreciation for our attendance, she gave us each a beautiful big chocolate-glazed donut. Ooh, that would have been a big deal back then. For sure. But, you know, sometimes she could be real hard to get along with, but below all that, Charlotte Armsworthy was a very, very gracious lady. And another thing I remember about her, she knew that I had an affinity for sea stories. Okay. Yes. And every now and then, now, of course, if you borrowed a book, you could borrow it for maybe about two weeks or something like that. And if you weren't quite finished it at the time, you'd go to her and she would renew it. And she'd keep track of who had books uh, over time or whatever, you know. So I would go to the library, and she would tell me if there was a really good, real hot sea story that I might enjoy reading. Oh, okay. You know, and at the time, CBC Radio out of Halifax had a program that went coast to coast called Harmony Harbor. 
And that was a compilation of sea shanties sung by a really polished quartet and stories of the sea, a lot of them tragic. Hmm. Most stories of the sea tend to be a bit tragic. Yes. Well, anyway, more than once when I was going over the corridor, she'd call to me and she'd say, I've got a really hot sea story here. When you finish your current book, I'll let you borrow it. And what you did is you borrowed one volume at a time. Because you know how bulky Braille can be? Yes. Okay. Well, you know, she, she would uh, borrow one volume at a time, and then I'd return it and get the second volume, and uh, you know, just keep on going uh, like that. And as a matter of fact, the book that I read to this newly blinded friend was Rudyard Kipling's Captain's Courageous. You remember the book? Yes. Wow. That's, a, that's uh, pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. So, Robert, you were telling us about reading to classmates and fellow students. What other kind of Braille activities were you involved with? Well, in 1971, about five years after I uh, graduated... Oh, let me backtrack a little bit. Um, the year after I uh, left the school in 1967, I started taking piano lessons and I uh, learned to read Braille music. And after a few years, I got it to about grade four in music notation and theory. But then, in 1971, under an Opportunities for Youth program uh, sponsored by the Secretary of State and the federal government, several of my former classmates were university students, and they submitted a project or several projects, and one of them was transcribing textbooks for the school students because Braille material back uh, at that time was very, very, very paltry. There, there was very little that the students could actually read independently as opposed to having volunteer readers come in to read to them on tapes and that kind of thing. So this is where several changes were made. And the movement at that time that you might recall was called BRAM or Blind Rights Action Movement. It's a little before my time. <laughs> it's not 19, in the early 1970s. Yeah, I was pretty young. Okay. Well, they asked me to be on the transcribing team, and I decided the person reading to me, and we were transcribing literature for the current uh, crop of, uh, of school students. And at that time, I became reacquainted with some of my former teachers. And then in the winter of 1972, I got a room at the old CNIB building there on Almond Street. Mm -hmm. And this is where my friend Sandra stepped into the picture as my reader. And uh, this was a paid job under the uh, Winter Works Program or local initiatives uh, under uh, the federal government. Uh, and we were really happy about that. And we were getting extension after extension. And I remember one particular uh, book that we transcribed was an economics book. And we had to section that off into 11 volumes. And the economics teacher at the school at that time was a former teacher of mine, Mr. Frank Brooks, the late Mr. Frank Brooks. And he would come up to the CNIB quite often with material and ask us, Yo, would you please transcribe this? And... We did it very willingly, and he'd stay and talk to us now and then. And 
We had several different types of literature to transcribe, not only school books, but we also transcribed the uh, quarterly reports for the uh, people who worked for what was, what was then known as Cater Plan, the canteen operators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what we used to do is somebody from the accounting office would come in and say, uh, here's uh, a bunch of these reports that we need to get out to our uh, blind canteen operators, and and each one of them had a different name on it. And then you know we would transcribe those and make sure that they get out in as efficient a time as we could. And then another thing that we did around that same time, Cater Plan had a newsletter that would go out every month, and we just made several copies of it. We had a thermoform machine or a Braillon or a copying machine uh, there in the library at the uh, CNIB building, and I manned that thing quite often. And it was kind of taxing because the thing would get real hot, and if you're reading thermoform for a while, your fingers would kind of get numb. Yes, I remember the old thermoform paper. Mm-hmm. So that is that how you ended up sort of starting your career? Because your career ended up being very much along those lines, correct? Uh, well, I mean, my professional career yeah. here in Toronto? No, no, that that is not correct. Oh, okay. No, uh, as a matter of fact, my professional career here in Toronto for almost 28 years... Was transcribing, uh, right? No, 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 oh. no, no. no. I, I, I say I, I was a professional medical dictotypist at Sunnybrook Hospital. Oh, uh, okay. So you see, for those for those of us on the outside, uh, actually, brailing or you did the dictotyping. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, Braille didn't enter the equation here. Do you think, though, that having that uh, proficiency in Braille and attention to detail had anything to do with your choice of career? Very, very much so indeed. Very much so. Now, I started to learn to type by touch typing when I was in grade nine, and our teacher was a Miss Doyle, and she was a very patient person. And what we used to have to do, the, the Braille students who were learning to type, they would have to read the uh, part of the book in Braille and type it. After uh, reading a few words, they had to type it out. Mm-hmm. And I made some pretty good marks in typing. And, of course, when I started out with uh, the uh, home row, the uh, ASDFG and all that jazz mm-hmm. on the uh, ribbon typewriter, little in my wildest dreams did I ever realize that that would blossom in, into a professional career. It would last me 28 years. Mm, that, that's a long time. And in fact, after I, I moved uh, from Halifax to Toronto, I remember being on the bus one day and I heard you speaking and I was like, I know that voice. Where do I know that voice from? Because you have a very clear, uh, very good broadcasting voice. Oh, well, thank you. The other thing I wanted to talk about, Robert, was one of the other early memories when I was very, very young. So I hadn't realized you had left the school long before I actually got there. <laughs> yeah, I left in 1966. In 1966? Yeah. Yes. So I hadn't arrived for a couple of years uh, to the school. But I do recall us being involved in a Braille car rally together. Yes. Do you want to talk about that and uh, what okay. that was all about? Uh, all right. The Atlantic Sports Car Club started these rallies. Uh, they patterned them after some rallies that were taking place down in the States. And I remember one year, this was in grade 10, and it was uh, during the study period, somebody came to the classroom and said, 
hey, you guys, Mr. Allen would like to see you. And he was a superintendent at the time. Mm -hmm. CRK, Charles Allen. Okay. So we, we all went to the uh, office. And then he started out, okay, would one of you go get to Mr. Legg's uh, strap so I can use it? Well, of course, he was just pulling her leg, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you, you knew Mr. Legg, did you? Oh, yes. He Lowell was still Legg? there when I was there. Yeah, yeah that's right. Okay. He ran this bias about the Atlantic Sports Car Club wanting to organize these rallies. And he said that they had room for 10 people from the school. And in order to take part in the rally, you had to have permission from home. Okay. So can you explain to our listeners what the rally was all about? Okay. Basically, what we did is they gave us the Braille instruction sheet. And what we were to do is read the instructions on the Braille page to the driver, and it was up to the driver to carry out those instructions as best he could, the objective being that we had to be at a given place at a precisely given time or close to it. Now, it a lot of people think, you know, sports cars, oh, you know, racing where they shouldn't be and all that sort of thing, but sports car uh, drivers, you know, the sports car club people are very, very law-conscious people, you know, and they do not go speeding where they shouldn't and all that kind of thing. You know, so that, that dispels a, a misconception people might have. So that what they would do, now, at the, at the official starting point of the rally, the driver, each driver would uh, set his odometer to zero, and then the mileages would be posted on your Braille sheet, and they would say, turn left at fork in the road. Your mileage should be whatever, you know. And then you went on. Now, along the rally route, there were these cars called checkpoints. And what their function was, you when you turned into the checkpoint, each driver was given a time card, and the attendant in the checkpoint would mark the time card, and then you had to sash out of there as quickly as you could so you'd keep the rally moving. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. How many years did you compete in this rally? Uh, okay, uh, I started on the first one in 1963, and the last one I actually competed in was in 1974 in Halifax, and, and I won that one. And then a few years here in Toronto, I took part in the uh, British Empire Motor Club uh, rallies. So they used to happen across the country? Well, I, I don't know about other provinces. But the rallies were usually held on a Saturday or Sunday, preferably a Sunday in most cases. So in 1977, the first year I was working up here, I took part in the uh, BEMC rally, and I came in second, and I still have that trophy. Do you think that that was an incentive for Braille users to get better so that they could compete in this rally? Because you, you had to compete in order to get into the rally, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, so you, you, you had to read the braille to the yeah. to the uh, driver. Right, but even before yeah, yeah, that, no, is, yeah, yeah. you were the navigator. Yes. What do you think of the idea, Robert, that people are suggesting that children don't need to learn braille now because everything talks to you and there's computer access and talking? I am very much opposed to that. Very, very much. I mean, don't get me wrong, uh, Rhonda. I love my technology and what it does for me and all this sort of thing, but there is never a substitute for good crisp Braille beneath your fingers. 
And the literacy component. I mean, how we learn to spell is by looking and feeling and seeing. That's right. Now, okay, uh, a lot of uh, classic books have been made into movies. But, I mean, I don't go in for going to movies and all this sort of thing, even the described ones, because if you have it in Braille, the words are spelled out for you. But, I mean, when you look at the screen, are you going to see words spelled out for you? I hardly think so. Nope, not at all. Not unless you're reading the capture, and most of us can't read that, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Very, very right. Now, I'd like to backtrack a little bit. I told you that I had a really peculiar little anecdote that I'd like to tell you about. Absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. Back when I was in about grade four, I read very, very slowly one word at a time. Which okay. Is fairly typical for grade four. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Well, okay. At the time, I could not stand hearing my voice played back to me on tape. It just gave me jitters. Okay. Well, okay. This one particular day, Pearl Campbell had uh, one of those old-fashioned reel-to-reel tape recorders that where the tapes could easily break if you didn't uh, Handle them uh, treat them properly, you know, yes. <laughs> and you know, they could unwind on you and make an awful mess. Well, she invited Mr. Leg to the classroom one day to... Now, was he your principal? Yeah, yes, okay. Lowell Leg, And he manned the tape recorder, and each student before starting to read, identified himself or herself. And I was the first one called upon to read. So he turned on the tape recorder and he came over and he gave me a little tap on the shoulder and he says, okay, tell us your name. And the passage we were reading was about the stone arrow and the animals they domesticated mm-hmm. way, way back in, the, shall we say, prehistoric times. So I started out. Robert Just Stone Arrow The Stone Arrow Tamed and it listed a bunch of animals. And here's where I really made a blunder. The Stone Arrow Also Tamed the dogman's first friend. There was a comma between dog and man, and I completely overlooked it, and I ran them together and it came up with the dogman's first friend. <laughs> well, after, after I finished reading the passage, I uh, paused for quite a long time, and uh, Pearl said to me, is that the end, Robert? And I said, yes, Miss Campbell, and the tape was still running. And she said, do you know what you did? You said the dog man's first friend. And it was supposed to be the dog man's, man's first friend. friend. Yeah. You know, but I completely overlooked the pause and I, and I ran the dog and the man together and it came out with the dog man's first friend. Well, she kept that tape for quite some time. And here's the irony of the whole thing. That year, I actually won the Braille reading contest. Well, you know what, though? When you tell that story, it, it kind of brings to mind for me that... I'm not sure without, I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure without Braille, but if we didn't have Braille and understanding the punctuation that happens and how that makes you a good reader and the pauses and things like that, those things get lost in audio 
we hear Th- that's people true. read. We hear people read, and we hear the pause, and we hear the pronunciation of the word. Right. And some words, you know, you'll be listening to a reader, and they might pronounce it slightly different. Precisely. And that's what's really challenging. If you're not feeling the crisp braille, as you put it, under your fingers, you're missing out on things like commas and exclamation marks and, and how and, they and, all work. Yes. Yeah, that's right. But, of course, you, you can pretty much tell by the inflection in a reader's voice, too. If you understand what it is that they're doing. Exactly. But as a young child, you may not pick up on those commas, and there may be lots of dogmans. <laughs> that, that, that's right. Well, anyway, that was about the speed that I used to read back then, you know, one word at a time. Word yeah. at a time, or sometimes even slower. Well, I mean, that's the learning, the, the process, right? And that's I mean, right. The fact that you're still reading and still doing uh, Braille being such a big part of your life. What is your favorite Braille device? Well, I still like the Perkins Brailler. We've heard that from other guests. <laughs> yeah. And matter of fact, uh, I might ask you a little question here. Do you, you want to uh, stop the tape for a minute? Because I, I don't think I should be asking you questions. That's okay. Go ahead. Okay. I'll answer or not, and we'll edit okay. it if I don't like it. <laughs> uh, all right. My, my my query is, if I were to bring my Perkins Brailler in to, for an oiling job, would they be able to do it for me? Uh, I think I can I can connect you to the guy who can help you with that. That'd yes. be David? Yes. Mm-hmm. He can help you with that, and he actually has an assistant. He's been training one of our hub staff uh, to yes. to actually um, help fix the brailers. Precisely. And I I married a Mister Fix It guy, and he has gone online and learned how to take them apart and fix my brailler. Oh I yeah. Have, I have a brailler that is probably more years old than I'd like to admit, but yes. I, I I had it while I was in school. So well, I got my time. first per- Perkins Brailler as a Christmas gift when I was in grade ten. And at that time, they sold for $90. Heaven only knows what they sell for now. Yeah, they're probably over about 1000 or so. I don't know. Yeah. But, I mean, it's really interesting that your your favorite device still, you don't want to go back to the slate and stylus? Oh, no, that, that, that'd be torture. <laughs> Although, uh, I, I, I used to enjoy using the, using the pocket slate without that cumbersome board stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just the, you know, the plastic thing. You, know, you just stuck the paper in, the, the slate-sized paper. Now... Here again, there are different grades of Braille paper. Yeah, you know the slate size, a very narrow paper, mm-hmm. and then of course the the typewriter size paper, and of course you have different uh, sizes of that too. There's eight by eleven, there's eleven by eleven, and there's thirteen by eleven. Oh, okay, yes. Okay, and uh, so uh, let me see. Uh, there, there was another little anecdote that I wanted to tell you as well uh, about the uh, my experiences with uh, Braille. Now, oh, uh, before we went on air, I mentioned to you that I learned to read Braille music, and I can still do that, although I, I've kind of uh, gotten out of practice with it for quite some time. So most of the things that I play now are by ear. I, I play guitar. Uh, I'm taking mandolin lessons, and... Uh, I play a bit of piano, although the keyboard that I'd been using for several years uh, just uh, went zonko on me after a while, and I'm very much uh, considering uh, getting a new one. Mm-hmm. So you're a musician and a singer, and you use Braille music to do those things? Well, uh, most of my playing now is just by ear. But initially, did you yes. learn to? Did you take uh, music lessons when you were in school? 
no, no, I did. I didn't take them until I got out of school. Oh, okay. No, and the the teacher that I had there was a very very gracious person. She was also blind. Uh, Mrs. Vera DeBay. Is that name ring a bell? No. Okay. Well, when I first started with her, she lived on North Street. Mm-hmm. But you know, she moved around a fair bit uh, after that. But then after I started working steadily in the Braille transcription business, I just didn't feel like practicing when I got home. Okay. So. I thought, well, you can't serve two masters. So I just decided, okay, you know, I want to concentrate on my work. I'm enjoying that now. And after a while, my heart really wasn't in the music lessons. Ah, okay. And that happens to a lot of people with music. That's true. And, you know, I think the worst thing a parent can do is to try to push somebody into something they don't want to do. That can lead to very serious consequences, rebellion. Mm Mm-hmm. And who needs that kind of thing as a parent? This is true. Robert, in your day-to-day life, do you use Braille for labeling or mail or any oh, of those I, I do. I, I do have a Dymo labeler, yes. And uh, sometimes I do label uh, certain things. As a matter of fact, uh, I have uh, a Braille label on the sleeves containing my debit card and my MasterCard. And then I also have a little... Uh, Braille label on my uh, Subway card, the Subway restaurant card. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then I've, I've also got a Tim Hortons card with a Braille thing on it. It just says, says Tim. Yeah. Did you know that there's actually some places that have Braille uh, cards? Starbucks actually sells a Braille, uh, already pre-Braille labeled card. Yes. And um, I'm told, although I haven't seen one yet, that you can actually ask for and get your health card in Braille. I've heard that, and uh, I know that some banks, uh, if on, on request, can send you Braille statements. And phone bills. That's right. Yeah. Uh, MasterCard bills and that kind of thing. Do you think that Braille is a dying art, Robert? I would like to hope not. What do you think we should do? Maybe we should start another car rally or something to get that people interested. <laughs> that, that would be an excellent idea. As a matter of fact... Uh, I belong to the Blind Sailing Club, mm-hmm. and a few years ago, they organized a car rally, and they had the instructions put into Braille. Oh, so they're still happening sort of sometimes. Well, actually, I'm the secretary of the board of the Blind Sailing Canada, and uh, one of the things that they're talking about, it's sort of in the, pl- the talking stages, but not necessarily the planning stages right now, is reinstituting these car rallies. That would be very fun. It sure would be. Now, I was going to ask you, back in the in your time at school, and it was certainly by the time I got to school, um, we were talking about the W. Ross McDonald School, which is where I started school. Right. They used to teach Braille up until about grade three to every student. Mm-hmm. And then if you could see well enough, they would then start teaching you in print. Mm-hmm. What was your experience with your classmates in your time? Okay, we had a little different situation there, Rhonda, uh, because not everyone learned Braille. As a matter of fact, the ones that had uh, that were there for uh, sight saving, you might say, mm-hmm. that would read large print, then they didn't teach them Braille. But now, uh, many of the teachers who were sighted had to learn to read Braille. In order to correct your homework. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Uh, only, they, only they didn't use their fingers to read it, they read no. it with their eyes. <laughs> yes. And that can be really taxing on your... Uh, uh, optic nerve, I would think. I would think so. 
Robert, I want to thank you so much for coming in and sharing your stories and, and talking with us today. I've really enjoyed having the time to sort of hear some of these stories, some of them again, and some of them for the first time. Right. If you were to give any advice to new Braille users, what would you tell them? You have to really believe that you can do it. And as a matter of fact, the slogan for uh, Frontier Computing in the day was, it can be done. And I think you have to really believe in that and believe it yourself and don't let anybody say, oh, you can't do it, you're too old and all this other stuff, you know. If you really believe in it and you want to pursue it, get out there and do it and put your best foot forward and it's a resource that will never disappoint you. And you've been listening to Because Braille with Rhonda and Robert. For more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.